makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Betu Wastelo, Chante Waste, Napetu Zapiello, Le Unkipiki, He Wastelo. Greetings and good day, good morning, good afternoon, and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart, and today is certainly a beautiful day. It's good for all of us to be here and let the people hear your voice respectfully, celebrate life in addition to relativity. This is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from the East Gate of Turtle Island with the sun. And the water touched the earth at once. Our website is firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archiving. Our producer is Liz Hill. Well, I'd like to thank you for being here again. Again, my name is Teokasen Ghost Horse. On the way over, I saw a hawk, I saw a rainbow, and I saw an eagle. So I said, hey, it's a good sign that I'm here at this radio station at this time. And on to our first guest, which is in January, Max Wilbert and Will Falk launched an occupation of a proposed lithium mine at Thacker Pass in northern Nevada. And Max appears regularly on First Voices Radio to give us updates on what's happening at Thacker Pass and what we can do to support the people's efforts. Max is a writer, an organizer, and wilderness guide, and has been part of a grassroots political work for nearly 20 years. His latest book is Bright Green Lives and How the Environment how the environmental movement lost its way, and what we can do about it. And to keep up with the news about Thacker Pass, check out protectthackerpass.org and Protect Thacker Pass on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'd like you to listen to Max Wilbert. It's an honor to welcome this young man to First Voices Radio, and it has everything to do with this community as all communities in the United States. And now, Max Wilbert on First Voices Radio. Thanks for joining us, Max Wilbert, who's an organizer, writer, and wilderness guide, and author of two books, most recently, Bright Green Lies and How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It by Monkfish 2020, co-authored with Derek Jensen and Lear Keith. He's also an SAS whose work has been translated into six languages, and he wrote Introduction to the French Language Translation of Earth First Direct Action Manual. So, Max, we want you on the air because in Nevada, no one thinks Nevada counts. It's dry, it's arid, it's out there someplace away from civilization. But yet 
what keeps this civilization is what being extracted from the land. And part of that is Thacker Pass on Shoshone Paiute lands. And um, we've been with you since you camped out in February, March of this year, uh, even January, I think. And, and now we want just to catch up with you and see what's going on the latest. And we know one of our friends has passed on, Myron Dewey. Let's talk about your work and what updates you can give us from Thacker Pass at this time. And welcome to First Voices again, Max Wilbert. Thank you, Tiokasen. It's it's really good to be back. And congratulations on uh, switching to the new station. And, uh, you know, Liz was saying that uh, you all are getting some great production and, and getting a lot of support for your show, which is great. Um, yeah, I, I, I will say, um, Myron Dewey, we were very sad when that took place. He, uh, he was spending some time out here and was very passionate about what was happening here to this land. And, um, you know, we lost, we lost a warrior there. Um, as far as this land here, Thacker Pass or Pahimaha, as it's called in Paiute, uh, we learned that name back in March when uh, we made friends with a bunch of different people, elders, uh, community members from the Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone tribe. Um, Pahimaha means rotten moon, and that name goes back to this, uh, this story that's only been told in oral history before. Um, it wasn't written down anywhere before, uh, before re very recently in the last few months um, when we heard this oral history from elders and asked them if it was okay to, to share that story. And, uh, and so it started to get out there in the media. And that story tells of a massacre, um, a conflict between two tribes that took place out here maybe 200 years ago, maybe earlier than that, um, in which a, a group of Paiute people were, uh, were ambushed and killed out here in what's now called Thacker Pass. And um, their bodies were left to rot and, uh, and the hunters returned. They had been away on the other side of the mountains uh, hunting. And when they returned, they found their, their relatives and they, they smelled the, uh, their relatives' bodies. And that's where the name Rotten Moon comes from. Um, this, this pass is shaped like a half moon if you look at it from, uh, from the east. And, you know, we, we learned recently that there was another massacre in Thacker Pass. We had been actually hearing from elders for a while that uh, people hid from U.S. Army soldiers in Thacker Pass uh, sometime in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, which was a period of intense conflict, um, multiple different wars happening through this region. As the colonization, uh, you know, a lot of white settlers were flooding in. They were taking all the best land. They were overhunting the game and uh, overfishing the fish in the rivers. And the food supply for um, the native people was being decimated. And so, uh, you know, war broke out, of course, this led to conflict. And, um, and, and we heard from the elders that people hid from soldiers in Thacker Pass, that this was one of the refuges. What we learned recently was a lot more specifics of that event. We learned that there was a massacre committed by the U.S. Army on September 12th, 1865, that took place in Thacker Pass, right at the east side of Thacker Pass, 
Um, and what happened was a, a group of U.S. cavalry uh, came upon a camp of Paiutes and ambushed them in the early morning hours right at dawn. Um, and the camp was unprepared. Um, at least 31 Paiute men, women, children, and elders were murdered on that day. Um, the death toll could actually be quite a bit higher than that. Um, but that's what was reported in newspapers at the time. And as far as we know, there were at least three potentially more survivors of that massacre who fled and escaped. Um, one of them was a man named Ox Sam, who is the great, great, great grandfather of um, some of the elder ladies who I was just sitting down with earlier today. Um, so without that massacre having taken place, uh, the Fort McDermott tribe might not exist at all. Uh, apparently, Ox Sam went on to become a chief. He was a young man when the massacre took place. He went on to become a chief um, and played an, a pretty significant role in history. And so BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, the federal government, and the mining company are ignoring these massacres. They're trying to say that they're not important, that they didn't happen. Um, and, uh, you know, we're trying to boost the story of what did happen. And really tell the truth about this because it's an important event in the history of this country and the history of the Fort McDermott tribe and the Northern Paiute Western Shoshone people. Um, you know, I'm not a member of that community, but we've been working, I've been working closely with those folks and trying to, to boost their message because it's the right thing to do. You know, we just mm -hmm. need to tell these stories. We can't ignore them. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's not even to get into all the other issues that this giant lithium mine would cause in terms of harm to the wildlife and water use and air pollution and, and all the rest. Max Wilbert, let's talk about that lar largest lithium mine deposit in the U.S. And you said something 60,000 metric tons. The last time I talked with you with is battery grade lithium annually. It's the largest nations. This lands the United States and I'm not too sure North America's largest source of lithium. But we talk about Tesla People want their Tesla, their car, but yet it's now, you know, there's Silicon Valley and there's now this is called Lithium Valley. Could you take us to why it, it seems like it's still being sugar-coated as the next alternative, yet what it's destroying? Because you're talking about destruction of Native people to get Native people off there. And yet you picked up that consciousness as a non-Native and carrying on the, the resilience of the Native people to not destroy that beautiful valley. And I've seen pictures of it. I've seen the immensity of it and how, to me, even destroying an ant colony would devastate the land. Can you tell us your ideas about this? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. This would be a huge lithium mine. Um, the project area is about 28 square miles. So, you know, that's hard to understand for a lot of us. I'm sitting right now near the western edge of the project area, and if I wanted to walk to the east side, it would probably take me two, three hours, maybe four hours. Um, and I'm I'm in pretty decent shape. I go hunting, I go hiking, and stuff, right? So um, it's big. It's a huge area. It's, if you're driving through from one side to the other at sixty miles an hour, uh, it's about a seven-minute drive from one end of the project to the other end. Um, and this is a really significant 
site here, not just for the historical reasons that I mentioned, but also for the animals and the birds and the other wildlife here. Uh, Thacker Pass is a, a pass between two different mountain ranges to the north and the south, and it uh, provides travel from one valley to the east to another valley to the west um, through cutting through these mountain ranges. And it's because of that, it's very important habitat for all this wildlife that uses it just like humans do as a travel route, as a place to get back and forth between these different areas. So you've got a pronghorn antelope, mule deer, uh, bighorn sheep, uh, sage grouse, uh, foxes, spotted skunks, uh, golden eagles nesting uh, in this area, at least 12 nesting pairs, and, uh, and countless other creatures rely on this land, um, rely on this habitat being intact. Um, you know, it would be one thing perhaps if the rest of the world was intact to, to harm an area like this. But of course, uh, this mine would just be uh, another injury to the earth that's already so injured. Right, this area has already been hit pretty hard by um, by a lot of different environmental issues, whether it's urban sprawl or too much uh, water pumping from the aquifers. So many of the springs have gone dry; the rivers are, have uh, barely any water left in them. Um, you know, one example of that is in 1865 when those soldiers uh, crossed the Quinn River to. Uh, to attack that Paiute camp while they were sleeping, they had to swim. They used the word swim when they talked about crossing the Quinn River. Today, in the exact same spot, that river is bone dry. And for all of the last nine months I've been here, through the winter, uh, through the rains and the snows, that river has been bone dry in that spot. Um, so this land, there's still a lot of life here. Um, there's still a lot of incredible life. And compared to, you know, New York City or Chicago, uh, it, the land here is actually doing okay because it's not paved over, right? It's still, there's still plants, there's still animals, there's still habitat here. There's uh, mountain lions and there's, uh, there's room to roam. But, uh, but it's not pristine. It's already been harmed a lot, this region. And so doing this much more damage to the land would be incredibly uh, harmful. And, you know, to answer the second part of your question, Tiokasen, you know, I think you're right. People, when they come out and see this place, they see how special it is. They see how important it is. Um, they hear the stories from um, the Fort McDermott tribal members who come out here and talk about what this place means to them and pray on the land and do ceremonies. And you can't not be moved by that, um, I guess, unless you're working for the BLM or the mining company. Um, you know, there's an old saying, it's hard to get someone to understand something if their job depends on it. And, um, you know, that's, that's the way I look at these BLM employees, these government employees, and these mining company employees. Um, you know, they're, they're human beings, and I don't know what's going through their heart, but I do know what's going into their wallet. And um, they want to they wanna blow up this mountain and turn it into, into money, ultimately. I'm thinking about how they plan to take the place apart, so to speak. And there's in situ mining processes, and this has a different mining process, I'm thinking. And uh, here in the East Coast, we think it's out there. It affects only out there. But yet you see many electric cars running already here, people watching and wanting that Tesla or 
some other type of car produced by some major car company here within the U.S. But these this more conventional mining that's going on there, it takes a different process to to leach the lithium from anything else to separate from anything else. Could you describe that process? Absolutely. So the lithium here is in clay. And what that means is to access it, they're basically just taking explosives and backhoes and dump trucks, and they're just blowing it up and putting it in trucks and then taking it down to their processing plant. Um, that plant would be built right here in, in Thacker Pass in Pahimaha. And it would use uh, hot water and sulfuric acid to uh, try and dissolve that lithium clay and then separate out the lithium from the other materials that are in there. Um, ironically, that sulfuric acid, uh, the way that they make that is from sulfur. And the sulfur comes from oil refineries. That's where pretty much all of the sulfur that's used today comes from. And they pull it out of gasoline and diesel and so on at oil refineries um, to reduce acid rain. So, uh, you know, we have a situation here where uh, they would be trucking in about 700,000 tons of sulfur every year to extract this lithium, which would go to making electric vehicle batteries and other types of batteries. Um, and that sulfur comes from the fossil fuel industry. So people think that they're getting a separation here, that they're getting something different, but they're not. It's, it's the same old story. And, you know, a, a lot of us like to believe that we can save the planet just by, um, you know, going to the farmer's market and buying some local produce or um, going to the store and getting a, a, I don't know, a bamboo recyclable toothbrush or something like that, right? But I think you and I both know, Tiokasin, uh, we need a lot deeper and more significant changes to the way we live. Um, you know, we can't just swap out what's powering our cars and keep everything else the same and expect that to save the planet um, because there's so many other issues and other problems. And so I really look at this whole push for lithium cars, uh, electric vehicles, as being a distraction from the real necessary things that we need to do, which I think involve uh, less cars, less consumption, less products, less factories, less mining, um, a lot less of all those things, and require us really moving towards a, a simple way of life in which we're living closer to the earth. That's the only sustainable way that, that humans have ever lived. And when you look at this lithium and electric vehicle, vehicle production, it, it really shows some of the lies that are being put out there um, around this so-called green technology. Just for a last uh, question here, what would you sum up? I know you've said a lot of reasons to suggest why we should stop, but we already know why we're going on. But the blindness of not being able to stop, because we don't know how. We, we, we're going to give up this privilege, this, this comfort uh, here in the East Coast or wherever this, this is broadcasting and become un-American? Is that what going to take? Do we have to unlearn? That's too hard because this is America. This is what we do. And it's good for the world. So you know the attitude I'm talking about, the one of arrogance, the one that we would say as Native people is spiritually lazy, that things have to change. Even Native people listening to this have 
gotten assimilated and got caught up into that road without no end, we say, what would you suggest? I'm, I'm not suggesting for any, I'm asking for any savior mentality or salvation point mentality, because as you know, it's, it's, we have to do what's required. And when we do what's required, that means we just can't do our best and give up because yeah. this a system the system is is doing its best. And when we lend our energy to it, it's more efficient. It kills yes. faster. So yes. what would you suggest with the scenario I just gave to you? Well, yeah, I would say, I, I think adding to what you said, I think that we need to get more, a lot more humble. You know, we, we like to think that we're so clever and we've got all the answers, but I think that we've got to got a lot, get a lot more humble and get better at listening to the land and, figuring out what is the land saying to us? How is the land communicating? And what can the land sustain? What is the land giving to us freely versus what sort of things do we have to rip or steal or tear away from the land in a way that's harmful? And I think if we have that fundamental ethic, we're likely to make uh, a lot better choices. Um, You know, the other thing I would say is I don't think this, this problem can be solved with purely the personal action. You know, a lot of people like to take personal action and I do too. I actually think it's really important to get our hearts and our spirits right by changing our own lives and changing the way we live, um, at, you know, at different levels, uh, to, um, to move closer to the land. And, you know, I love to, to do things like uh, go out foraging for wild foods and, and uh, make herbal medicines with my friends and my loved ones and, and, and do things like that that help take me away from the industrial system and closer to the land. But I think it's also important that we recognize that that alone won't be enough. We also need to stop these, these global systems um, because, you know, at the same time that, that we're doing those nice things for ourselves and our friends and our families um, and our community, you also have a lot of kids out there being indoctrinated by television, YouTube, and the latest advertising to love technology, to think that um, Elon Musk is a great man who's going to save the world and take us to a utopian future. Um, and so we need to we need to resist. I think we need to organize and resist and stop the destructive mines, the destructive pipelines, uh, all kinds of destructive projects and begin to build the alternatives at the same time in our communities so that we can help help provide for ourselves um, as these industrial destructive systems um, start to crumble, which they're, they're eventually going to whether or not we, we help them. But the sooner we help those systems to, um, to fall apart or to pass on, um, I think the better because they're doing a lot of harm and a lot of damage in the meantime. And I think we have to be the good, uh, the good ancestors, the good relatives, the good friends, and and help this culture evolve to its next stage. Help it evolve beyond this destructive, childish, selfish, arrogant uh, mindset that we're stuck in. Quite often, Max Wilbert, I run into the issue of community. What does community mean? Some people here, any anywhere in the U.S., think community is only talking about humans, but to Native people, community is totally something else. Would you describe that, how you found that to be different? 
Yeah, well, you know, I was I was raised in a family, you know, with pets and with respect for the natural world. And I was lucky to go camping a lot when I was young. And, you know, I was really taught to respect the land and to respect plants. And my dad was a, um, and my mom were gardeners and, and uh, my auntie is a basket weaver, you know, so she, she respects the cattails and the tule reeds and the cedar roots and, you know, has a relationship with those plants um, and understands what they need and what they want and what, what harms them and so on. And so I was really lucky to get some of that. And that's one of the reasons why I've, I've been involved in um, some wilderness guiding for many years, taking young kids out into um, wild places. And, um, you know, I, I love to do that because I, I try and instill that sense of respect um, in those kids and teach them that, you know, a plant is not just there for you to use and, and disrespect, um, that you can have a relationship with that plant and it may, it may give something to you, food or medicine or beauty or whatever it is. Um, but if you, if you, uh, don't put proper attention and respect into that relationship, there will be consequences. And that's what we're seeing all over the world right now is the consequences of a lot of disrespect towards, um, animals, water, plants, um, mountains. And that's the, that's the way that this dominant culture seems to, to operate and, um, we gotta we gotta figure out a better way. And a lot of people, like you say, Tiokasin, um, have known that better way. You know, I mean, my ancestors back in, in Europe, uh, you go back far enough and they were land-based peoples, you know, before they were colonized themselves by the Romans and and different empires that came through and really separated them from the land and and started to uh, control them and assimilate them into a more of a destructive um dominating culture um and we've all got the ability to to do that connection to live in a good sustainable way with the land it's really our birthright to to live in that way and i think we've just got to reclaim it and and put a stop to the destructiveness well thank you so much max wilbert for speaking to us in the middle of the desert as they say or in thacker past or Bahimaha. yeah exactly Oh, awesome. Yeah. Sounds good rolling off my tongue. Pahimaha. And uh, <laughs> that's good. So say hello to Pahimaha, the people, the the beings there, the love beings, the, the you know, the antelope and all of those that I miss. And uh, especially to the people that you work with. And thank you for doing that. It's honor. It's an honor for us that you're doing this, actually, Max. And uh, keep it up. Keep going. And don't hesitate to call us. We need an update. We'll do that. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jokasin. I hope you have a great day. And Max Wilbert is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide, and he co-authored Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. Check out protectthackerpass.org and Protect Thacker Pass on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Corruption.
And you are listening to First Voices Radio with me, Teokas and Ghost Horse. And thank you for joining, listening. And we do appreciate you 
who are listening and have listened and those who will listen to Indigenous messages that we emanate these experiences of how we choose to live with the earth. And it is an honor to welcome our second guest, Dr. Llewellyn White, who is Mohawk from Akwesasne. She's an associate professor of First People Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec. Llewellyn is a descendant of Carlisle Indian School survivors, that is boarding school, and is the founder and spokesperson for the Carlisle Indian School Farmhouse Coalition. Her book, Free to be Mohawk, Indigenous Education at the Akwesasne Indian School, and was published by the University of Oklahoma Press. And Llewellyn and I discuss a recent article by Mary Annette Pember in Indian Country Today, in which she was featured, quote, Professor Answers to call, Answers call to Find Boarding School Children. And uh, this is Llewellyn Light on First Voices Radio. I'm talking with Llewellyn White, and it's a great honor to have you here from the Akwesasne people, who is an associate professor of First People Studies at Concordia University in Montreal in Canada. And she's been doing research and writing about the Carlisle Indian Boarding School uh, for a number of years. And it has different names to it, Carlisle Industrial Boarding School. But these are names that are applied to schools all over the U.S. and in Canada, residential schools, boarding schools in, in the United States. So I want to talk to you, Lou Allen White. You have been researching, writing, finding, looking for answers about the boarding school children that have really come to light in, in May, about 215 students in Kamloops, British Columbia. And I wanted to get your thoughts on why you have been doing this research, not since then, but before with your Carlisle experience. Can you, can you talk to us about that, Lou Allen? Sure. I would just like to say Sego Sewakwego. Hello, everybody. And Nyawa to you, Tiokasin, for having me. And it's so nice to see you after all of these years. And I'm really happy to be here and talk about this. So I will just say that um, I became interested in Carlisle Indian School a number of years ago because my grandfather, uh, Mitchell White, Alunkiwago, he was sent to Carlisle and his brother, John White, as well. My grandmother's sister, Genevieve Jacobs, was also at Carlisle and many other extended family. So it was, uh, gosh, maybe 20 some years ago that I started to do a little bit of research on my grandfather and his brother. And that led me in lots of different directions over the years. I've written and published about my grandfather, his outing experiences a bit, and his brother, John White, who was an opera singer. And he was performing in a school play at Carlisle called Captain of the Plymouth. And so I've written and published about that. And then I became a bit of an activist with the uh, uh, Historic Preservation Project in saving the Carlisle farmhouse, which was slated to be demolished by the US Army because the former school, Carlisle Indian School, is on the grounds of the um, Carlisle Barracks. So it's a, it's a US Army War College in central Pennsylvania. So it's still very active in, in that regard. So while I was doing all of this various work and research, I, so maybe four years ago, I started to see references when I was looking at outing 
outings and um, for my grandfather's experiences, I was looking for information and that led me to references to children who were sent on outings and they died. And I didn't find any information that said that they were buried in the school cemetery or that they were sent home. So I started documenting those names and gathering archival data information or archival documents from the Carlisle records that are held with NARA, uh, National Archives and Records Administration, in which Dickinson College is, has been digitizing those records over the last few years. But first, I'll just say that the outings were something that many, many Indian boarding residential schools had in which in the summertime, they would send kids to work as essentially cheap child labor. They were working in homes and businesses of white families, farmers. And my grandfather was sent to work on farms in Pennsylvania, New Jersey. So th these kids that I was finding reference that they died um, on, on their outings and, and I didn't see what happened to them. And uh, so I had about 11, 12 names or so that I was researching and I got some small bit of funding and went to Pennsylvania, went to New Jersey and I was looking for them to see what, where did they go, where, how, who took care of them? Did anybody take care of them in their in their uh, burials? And uh, didn't really find very many that had any headstones or any markers of any kind. Um, and in fact, I published the news uh, article, the news story that you probably saw on September thirtieth. Um, which here in Canada is Orange Shirt Day, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, in which I published a story with Indian Country Today Media Network called A Mother's Prayer. And I wrote about these burials and my time going through cemetery after cemetery, looking for any kind of marker that indicated that that's where that child was buried. And um, so I went through cemeteries and um, was able to figure out, for the most part, where they are. But um, in, in some cases, it's just a matter of uh, maybe they're buried in the pauper section of the cemetery um, because there's no headstone. Um, and while I was in the process of doing that, I was in Pennsylvania. I was in Philadelphia, uh, I guess this was two years ago, uh, and I was I was inquiring about one one name that I had, and that just led me to a whole whole new discovery of a list of twenty five names of children who died and are buried at the Woodland Cemetery in Philadelphia. And those children went to the Lincoln Institution and Educational Home, which was another Indian boarding school in Philadelphia. I had known about that school because I'm pretty sure my grandfather went there before he went to Carlisle. And so there were there's a lot of reference in the Carlisle records 
to visitations to Lincoln and vice versa. Some of the kids that went to Carlisle were sent to Lincoln and, um, and the other way around as well. So that led me to the next summer going back there and going to the historical society, looking for annual reports and trying to find further documentation because I had names, but no nations. So this, the woodlands gave me a list of the names, where they were buried, but no nations. So I didn't know who they, who they belonged to, who their families were, where were they taken from. And um, so that's been the, the bulk of the research in the last year or so, looking for archival um, documentation to try to reconnect them with their living relatives. You recently wrote Who Gets to Tell the Stories and being an experiencer of boarding school, and as we call ourselves, we weren't graduates, but we were, we were survivors, you know, and, and so out of that, those stories, we passed it on because it would seem that the stories would not be believed by mainstream press, other peoples other than Native peoples, and yet those voices that you heard your father, your grandfather tell you is now coming out. How do you feel about this new, the news, but yet there is such a strength behind that these stories hold true the oral tradition of, of our people and Native people? Yeah, I and I have to say, like many people, and probably you included, when this news came out earlier in the, the summer of the um, Kamloops uh, Indian residential school where they found 215 unmarked graves of children who went to that residential school. I had, you know, like many, I, I had known, I had heard stories and um, I wasn't shocked at all. And in fact, it's a little embarrassing now to say that when I saw the headline, I didn't even read it. I saw the headline, I didn't read the story because I had known I'm so immersed in it that I thought, oh, wow, okay, good. I'm glad it's out there. And, you know, it's embarrassing, but I kept scrolling. And then people were texting me and saying, are you okay? And I thought, what do you mean am I okay? What happened? And then I realized, oh, wow, wow. Data. And so for me, that, that realization that the awareness amongst the public has just exploded and then more discoveries. And then it became an, an emotional roller coaster. And I'm sure like many survivors, I mean, I, I imagine it was so much more intense and an emotional roller coaster in a lot of ways. Um, and, and so for me, I felt Oh, I have to get this work out there. I have to get these names out there because it wasn't that I was holding them and waiting. I was trying to do it in a good way. I was trying to first find as much documentation as I could to connect them with their living relatives and do it in a way that was honorable, that was respectful, in which I could personally just reach out to communities. But the list kept growing and growing and growing. And it was taking a very long time just to create a database. And I decided, okay, I have to get it out there. And so I wrote the story for Indian Country Today Media Network. And, um, and then once that got out there, I felt 
a huge burden being lifted for my work and also the discoveries that kept coming out in the summer and people at my son's school and uh, all of the teddy bears, the orange shirts. And, and it was incredibly moving. And I felt like, okay, wow, now it's your turn you know, to, the, to the general public, to the, you know, to the non-Indigenous people that uh, really had no awareness or, or um, that have been allies over the years. But I felt like, here, you take this for a while. You carry this burden. You feel this intense emotion. You feel this pain for a while. You help to carry that. So that's how I was feeling, you know, personally. And, and with my son, uh, he was able to do um, something at his school. He's in grade three here. And in, on September 30th, he wanted to bring in sage and sweet, uh, sweet grass, cedar and all the medicines. And he wanted to bring in the turtle shell and he wanted to tell our creation story. So he got his you know, special blanket, bundled it all up. And, and I was on Zoom and uh, help him a bit. And he was just so proud. And he had pictures of his great grandpa at Carlisle and that he was able to talk about that freely uh, that's the beauty that I was able to find in, in all of this, that what I am passing on to him and what his awareness and, and who he is and what he's able to uh, turn, uh, turn around, you know, he's able to turn all of that upside down and reclaim our stories and, um, and, and, and go to school and be proud where, you know, his great grandpa couldn't do that. This is so good to hear. I think that's that's what we're looking for is what we'll do for the young people to make them proud, like you said. But also you published something for you to be Mohawk and with the co-editor, Michael Taylor, and you published a call for contributions this past summer. And is that still going on? And is that for uh, other people who've had the experience or maybe just stories like you just told about your son? Um, yeah, so first, the, the Free to Be Mohawk is a book that I published in 2015, based on my PhD dissertation research. But most recently, yes, with um, Michael Taylor, who's a professor at Brigham Young University in Utah, we're co-editing a collection, Boarding School Stories. Um, don't have an official title of that yet, but we put out a call for papers. And, and I'm so glad to be collaborating with him because... He, he's not indigenous and how he approached me, he was recommended to me by a, a mentor and friend and colleague of mine, indigenous uh, scholar. Um, and, and, and he's been very, very gracious and um, listening, listening to me. We did a nice uh, Native Studies Association presentation back in May. And he's, um, I feel thus far being a true ally and really going about this the right way. And what we hope to do is to provide an avenue, a mechanism for those who don't have opportunity to tell their stories and get them out there and published. So it could be community members, elders, 
whatever they would like to share in a variety of ways, be creative, could be poetry, it could be uh, prose, short story, um, but really wanting to give a platform and, 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 and to do it in a way that's not so heavy uh, with academic jargon and doesn't mean that it's not valid. I mean, these are traditional ways of knowing and trying to really uphold those um, uh, indigenous epistemologies and, and offer, a, because I've had so many people over the years that really want, that have so many stories within them that they want to share. And so that, so there's a call for papers that is still open. We're still um, taking abstracts uh, from people who are interested in contributing. Okay, we'll note that and we'll give the information out at the end here of the program. You are also wanting to prevent the demolition of this Carlisle Indian School farmhouse. Yeah, so this came about uh, 2011 or so. Um, I, I didn't even know there was a farmhouse. I had been to the grounds of Carlisle Indian School. You have to go through, nowadays, you have to go through a security check. You have to go through the gates and, and uh, background check and all of these things just to get it into the barracks because it is an active uh, military base. It's the U.S. Army War College. So, And that's where the cemetery is, where there's almost 200 children that were buried there. And over the years, the last three, four years, there's been um, communities and, and uh, nations that have repatriated children from that cemetery. The farmhouse is not that far away from the cemetery. So when I was alerted in 2011 by Carolyn Tolman, who's a dear, dear, wonderful person. She was living in the farmhouse with her five children and her husband, who was at the U.S. Army War College. And she found myself and other descendants on the Facebook group of Carlisle Indian School Descendants, Family and Friends, told us, hey, there's a farmhouse here and I've been doing research. So she does the genealogical research and she put together a website and she documented very thoroughly how that farmhouse was used during the Indian school era. So with her and some other people, we created the Carlisle Indian School Farmhouse Coalition. And yeah, they, they were ready to, to tear it down to make room for modern housing. Um, and with Carolyn's help, we, we've, found reference to the farmhouse being used during during the Indian school era where kids who were trained in agriculture would stay at the farmhouse overnight and then go off in the morning to milk the cows because it was there was an active farm right there and um so there's a lot of different references to to how it was used during the Indian school era but the army didn't want to listen to us in the beginning. They didn't, I wrote letter after letter after letter to um, to uh, every, everyone who, um, you know, was at, the, was at the barracks at the time, the garrison commander, the commandant, and um, they didn't really want to listen to us. So I, I, I pretty much 24 seven was working on this 
um, in my second trimester of pregnancy. <laughs> I had some, some, some women out there might, might uh, understand this, but there was such a surge of energy in that second trimester. I was unstoppable. And um, uh, I had a, a, a connection at the time. James Anaya was the special rapporteur on the rights of indigenous people with the United Nations. I uh, wrote to him and asked for his support, got the press involved. I started a petition and we had, oh my gosh, was like 2,000 or so, almost 2,000 signatures. The, the, all of the, uh, the, the, the press, um, I think that and, and the uh, pressure from the UN because James and I came through and he wrote a letter for us and we got all kinds of tribal nations uh, writing, writing letters as well. And so at the final hour, they said, okay, okay, we won't tear it down. Okay. And so they had to, I mean, there's all this historic preservation process that, that um, we've been trying to push through over the years in which they did a new review. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers did a, did a whole study and lo and behold, wow, it was used during Indian school era. Wow, it is culturally significant. Oh, it's historically significant. It's architecturally sound and significant. It has all these architectural features as well. So they, they finally backed down. And, um, and so over the years, it, it's kind of been difficult because it's been empty, it's been vacant. And I did that uh, a survey with descendants and I got 125 or so Carlisle descendants that filled out a survey. I wanted to know, I wanted to get data. I wanted to get some information from the voices of Carlisle descendants into, okay, we would we have this opportunity to possibly create a heritage center dedicated to Carlisle Indian School. What would you like to see? What would you like it to be about? What would you like to do with this? And that's when I wrote that article, Who Gets to Tell the Stories? And um, so we've been trying to create something that is really centered on the voices of Carlisle Indian School um, descendants and, and families because it closed in 1918. So there are no living survivors. It's right. the descendants, right. but overwhelmingly it's like, we, we need a place to go. We, there's no place for us to go. When we visit Carlisle, we go to the cemetery, we have to go sit under a tree. There's no place where we can have some kind of interpretation to what this was about. Not, we'd like it to be, um, highlighting the intergenerational impacts uh, of what Carlisle was about and um, really essentially a place for healing to begin. They recently discovered 12, 13, 14 out of the 139 grave sites or churches and the residential schools in Canada, but they're throughout the United States. More than 369 boarding schools have really not been uncovered. And so that work is still to be done. Do you plan to keep contact with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition and combine forces, so to speak, to get these graves uncovered too? Yeah, well, just to, to back up a little bit, when I started to do this work, I was doing it on my own as I was finding outing, uh, reference to the outing burials. And at the time, uh, NAVS, Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, they had a call out 
in which they were contracting researchers to gather information on children who died and went missing during the boarding school era. And, and, and so I got a small uh, amount of funding from them to continue the work that I had already started independently. And then that they're, they're, uh, they've helped support that. Mm -hmm. And then I was able, once I gathered all of that information on the outings, I was able to write a report and give that to NAVS in which they were able to include that on a UN filing for uh, about children who went missing and, and died during boarding school era. Um, and, and then that sort of emerged into something else with the, the Lincoln Institute. And so I've been doing that uh, independently. However, I am out of funding. <laughs> <laughs> I have no funding. I have a graduate student who I had an uh, had a grant from my university and that's uh, depleted. And so she's been volunteering her time. One of, the, one of the things that I really uh, feel very strongly about is that this work that I that I'm doing personally, it's very personal to me. Mm. I feel such a a deep responsibility to doing this work and to ensuring that there's um, integrity with this work and that it is grassroots, that I am able to make a phone call and, and, and speak to these families. And, and mm -hmm. so every day I get multiple emails since that story came out, in fact, and when we get off, I have to get back on okay. to do that. Okay. So I'm really wanting there to be that personal touch to it and that grassroots um, uh, initiative so that, um, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't get to the point where there's, there's a disconnect between um, those, those children and, and their families. And then there's a whole bureaucracy in the, in the way of that. Um, yeah, so, uh, and it may turn out to be that, you know, there's there's some way to collaborate, uh, again, with NAVS, they're supporting what I'm doing now, and, and, and like I said, I know, I know Christine fairly well, and she knows the work that I'm doing. Well, thank you so much, Luella White, for being here, and it's an honor to have you and your voice here on uh, First Voices Radio. Thanks. Thank you, Teokasin. Now, uh, it's such a wonderful experience to see you again after all these years. <laughs> Dr. Llewellyn White, who is Mohawk from Akwesasne. You just heard her. She's an, an associate professor of First People Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec. And I'd like to thank her for being here. And thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghostor. So, Nshimalaye Oyate Wani Wachichuelo.
but 